Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager at Skylight Books here in Los Angeles. Um, right now, you are, you've made it to 2021. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast over the past year as we've reconfigured and, and made this a new space for authors to have these conversations. Um, today, we're, we're really looking forward to this conversation with Mark De Silva and Rachel Allen. They're going to be talking about Mark's new book, Points of Attack. Um, I'm going to give them a, a proper intro in just a moment, but I wanted to let you know um, we are still open for in-store shopping 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We also offer curbside pickup those same hours and uh, online ordering is available 24-7 on our website, skylightbooks.com. All right, so let's get into it. So Points of Attack, um, this is a collage of critical reflections written in the tradition of the short essay running through Francis Bacon and Roland Barthes. The novelist, philosopher, and former New York Times opinion staffer Mark De Silva looks into matters of both common curiosity and special concern in America today. Technological evolution, virtuality, terrorism, the future of the self, the individual's place in a globalized society, the species place in the natural world, the state of the arts, and the animadversions of the sciences. Above all, Points of Attack is a handbook of the ways of the good life in bad times and an inoculation against presumption in an era when the axioms of liberal democratic life have come undone and the end of history once again appears a long way off. Mark De Silva is the author of the novel Square Wave and the fiction editor of 3AM magazine. Points of Attack is his first book of nonfiction. His new novel, The Logos, will be published in the fall of 2021. In conversation with Mark is Rachel Allen. Rachel Allen is a writer based in New York. Her work has appeared in Best American Experimental Writing 2018, Unpublishable, an anthology, Full Stop, The Fanzine, and Guernica, of which she is an editor. She is also an assistant blog editor at Asymptote and a graduate student in philosophy. In 2019, she was in residence with the Tulsa Artist Fellowship. Mark and Rachel, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks a lot. Hi. Hi. Uh, um, so uh, when we met, uh, you were uh, working on um, uh, your second novel, uh, What Would Become the Logos, and you eventually told me that it had spawned uh, this uh, second smaller work, um, a book of aphorisms is how you described it, and that's still uh, the description under which I think of uh, points of attack. Um, you want to start by reading 
uh, one of these uh, aphoristic sure. pieces, um, creative austerity, maybe? Creative austerity. The thing about creative drive, which you can just as well think of as a kind of pressure, is that there are so many ways it can be dissipated. Whether I find that I'm not writing much of anything or even just anything with real vigor to it, I usually discover, and always as if for the first time, that there are too many valves open bleeding off this pressure. The releases are many and some are unexpected, food for one. Curiously, I can't write anything worthwhile on a full stomach. In fact, hunger itself may serve as a useful metaphor for thinking about creativity. A certain kind of intellectual and emotional deprivation can yield work of greater intensity. All sorts of pleasures, both worthy and trivial, can seem to blunt it. Watching films, reading, browsing the web, socializing, romance, too much sleep even. So to find my way back to my sharpest writing, Spartan self-denial is generally the answer. Which is to say, to come around to the earlier metaphor, the valves must be tightened and the pressure must build. Invariably, within a few days, I reach a state of productive agitation, restless to write again, to probe with words. Almost magically, a reassuring force is restored to my writing, to my mind. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, you've commented here on sort of the conditions of um, your making of books. Um, and specifically, you comment on your need for uh, deprivation um, as a condition for um, creation. Uh, is this book a result of any specific deprivations? Uh, uh, I mean, I, I constrained myself to certain short forms. I mean, it's sort of it's self-imposed um, limitations, but uh, they, they were written partly uh, as the result of working at um, uh, a newspaper and a magazine and some of the editorial tasks I had there. So um, some of the ideas, maybe topics that came across my mind came through that channel. But uh, the compression is sort of a, 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 a self-imposed constraint to write in sort of unusual length, uh, 300 to 500 words. So longer than an aphorism, I would say, maybe I, I may have started them with that idea, but also shorter than a proper essay. So it's, it sort of generates sort of unusual results when you, you work at a, at a length that isn't um, you know, typically worked at. Mm -hmm. I guess I was also, uh, sort of watching you work on this and on uh, your novel, which was growing to sort of unexpectedly uh, gargantuan proportions. That's the Logos. Um, and as that um, a book was sort of unusually florid, big. Um, and I was wondering what relationship this uh, quite compressed, tight, book in that form um, bears to uh, the fullness and maximalism of the other book. Yeah, I don't know that. Um, yeah, it, it certainly is a, is a very sharp contrast in that way. I mean, they, they both employ a, a pretty uh, reduced kind of in, uh, concentrated style, shall I say. So the, even, even the logos or square wave, this, you know, the sentence structure sometimes can be can be on the longer side, but ultimately, I think the density of the writing is is something that people have noted about of the, about those books, and I think equally that's here. I just have you know 
that you know i'm i'm focused on not on fiction there so i have to follow a fictional world rather than topical issues whereas this one you know there's no no such obligation so i was able to sort of stick to the world itself in a very direct way rather than you know mediating it through you know fictional posits and whatnot so maybe that's you know part of the reason for the differences can you say more about what, how your thinking works differently uh, in a fictional world versus in um, this world that we all share? I just mean, you know, your, your obligations are to development and to character and to place and setting. I mean, those are lingering sort of in the background of, of um, you know, as, as you compose or I compose from notes, you know, note cards having Sort of certain descriptions of scenes and imagery and other things. Whereas with the nonfiction, I mean, there's there's uh, you know none of that is going on. I could just you know cut to the chase, go straight after a topic. It has its own costs. It doesn't have the you know the same imaginative power. I don't think. Uh, I don't think a, almost any nonfiction has that type of imaginative power uh, as as great fiction anyway. Uh, but it has its other virtues. Um, uh, really following a line of thought in a very you know careful precise way that's what i try to do in, in points of attack anyways that that's partly why the pieces are so short that they are very dense and i try to you know trace a line of thought you know uh, as carefully as i can and, and using every word for sort of maximum effect so in that way it borrows from the tradition of the aphorism it's just longer than an aphorism so i, I it's difficult to explain beyond that except that the pieces fall at a length I, d I haven't seen much of them even Francis Bacon's essays which are the shortest that you know you really find in the tr in the tradition anyways these are significantly shorter than those certainly Montaigne wrote at much greater length than most essays do there are also essays that obviously we write in fragments these days uh, that you know Sarah Manguso or mm -hmm. Maggie Nelson and uh, that's just a very different type of writing these these I wouldn't consider fragments they're complete rounded thoughts mm -hmm. so um, that's another difference. Yeah, uh, I think you're right to um, say that uh, compression, even in your longest writing, um, in your novels, I think compression does play uh, a big role in the, in just your style of writing. I think that's um, some an inheritance maybe from your background in analytic philosophy, um, where the, that, uh, the emphasis is so much on uh, concision and on the, uh, the choice of uh, the right word. And I think that um, uh, you've um, indicated in, in this book and uh, elsewhere that um, there's a close linkage for you between uh, writing and thinking. Um, and maybe you could speak a, a bit more to how um, that relationship, uh, between maybe what that relationship is uh, with compression, um. uh, yeah, I, I think I think um, clearing out, clear, working in such a short form, clearing out unnecessary words or um, unnecessary clauses um, is really just a way of of clearing out uh, unnecessary ideas. So it, that I think that's the purpose mainly is. Uh, one tracks the other very closely in the way that I write anyways. And that mm. probably is, does come from my training in, in um, analytic philosophy, where uh, you, you try not to let your metaphors get out of control. You, there, there is a kind of discipline of, um, 
language use that, that the typical fiction writer or even the creative nonfiction writer, as they, as they call it, probably doesn't, doesn't utilize in quite the same way. So there is a kind of rigor and regimentation to the, to the writing, I think, that um, maybe is, is, is somewhat distinctive and, and definitely comes from a tradition um, in philosophy that emphasizes um, precision over sort of florid metaphors and, and, mm -hmm. and the like. Are the aims of, of thinking in such uh, precise terms different than they might be in um, a more florid style? Do you think um, uh, the, the actual goals of thinking are different? Uh, I, I, uh, I don't know. Um, I think it, in, what, what I'm doing here anyways in points of attack is not is certainly not trying to put the final word on anything or or um, you know, defend a thought in the way that one would in a journal article or a, a monograph. So in that way, it's not it's certainly not a piece of analytic philosophy. Mm -hmm. if, it, if it were, it would be a deeply flawed one. Um, uh, it's so you know, I, I I like writing in ways that other people don't write. So mm -hmm. that that's what it, it essentially is. It, it is not really like almost any other writing I've seen. Um, and uh, so you know, it can be a little bit. Puzzling, I suppose, but uh, it's written in a way that uses a very precise form, but borrows on sort of essayistic traditions that maybe are more open to um, ambiguity and questions. I mean, there's some relationship to Wittgenstein as well, though he tended to be more fragmented in, in mm -hmm. the, where these are more polished. And in, in my, in, in, for me, I would I would think of Bacon's collections of essays. That 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 really, to me, is is probably the the closest in terms of inspiration, you know, um, in terms of how topics are treated. More recently, I suppose, uh, John Berger, right, in his stuff on, on um, which is mainly visual arts, you know, that he focuses on, whereas my focus is not, but he writes at a, maybe a similar length, maybe, some, maybe there's something there. Uh, but again, I don't know if it has that same sort of, uh, that flavor of analytic philosophy, which is a kind of, um, you know, uh, it's yeah, it's just uh, quite intense and pointed in a way that maybe he's not. You want to maybe read another one? It's a good observation. Sure. Good observation. Ceteris uh, paribus surveillance extracts better behavior from us. With someone watching over our shoulders or just the threat of someone's so doing, temptation evaporates. Empirical studies are hardly required here. Plato's ring of Gyges suffices. What sort of ethical difference does observations taming of behavior make though? Certainly fewer ignoble acts occur and that utilitarian truth must count for quite a lot. But if the only thing preventing you from doing wrong is the likelihood of being caught, it is prudence, not rightness driving your actions. It is behavior under ring of Gyges conditions where your deeds are untraceable and not utility that matters to morality way character which is only to say the virtuous behave themselves whether or not anyone is looking, and a world in which people behave for reasons of goodness must be superior to a world in which we might suppose there are no more immoral acts committed, yet such is achieved only through prudential reasoning and the deterrent of surveillance. Perhaps prudence is all that liberal states can reasonably expect from their citizens. They build only the thinnest of moral outlooks into the law or public life generally, just enough to sanctify liberty, democracy, and hence their own legitimacy. 
As a consequence, modern democracies don't have much purchase on their subjects' hearts. They aren't aligned with their citizens' worldviews in any but the shallowest sense. A prudential attitude to citizenship seems a natural partner to this managerial conception of the state. So long as the referee state doesn't cite you for an infraction of the ground rules, you're free to commit yourself to an ethic of your own. The best we can do under such conditions is to make our referee as close to omniscient as possible so that infractions don't go unnoticed. Expecting citizens to obey an honor code, which is what morality proper requires, is simply asking too much. Of course, a less disenchanted politics is possible, provided we can meet its spiritual rigors. The state would need to trade its referee's whistle for a coach's playbook. It would need to take sides and positively back a rich and particular conception of social life and of justice so that subjects come to see cheating the state as tantamount to cheating themselves. This one, um, one of my favorite things, uh, picks up a number of the um, themes or uh, threads maybe um, that emerge only from uh, reading Points of Attack as a, as a whole work. Um, there's sort of current notes um, that come across in multiple pieces. You've got um, a bit of secularism uh, slash enchantment. Um, observation comes up uh, again and again um, in different forms, um, different forms of commitment and bias, uh, solitude and uh, commune. Um, and one thing I thought about a, a lot and wondered about a lot was how you see um, the relationship between these discrete pieces uh, and um, the work as a whole. How do you, I guess just to start out, um, how do you see that operating here? Uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote through, I wrote the individual pieces, you know, semi-autonomously as they sort of cropped up um, in my mind, whether a certain topic was put before me through, as I say, other editorial tasks. Um, but then I, in the rewrites, I wrote through them. So there's, I think, a lot of bleed through from that, that uh, what was started as sort of loose impressions became, I guess, individually, the pieces became sharper, but there also beca became a sort of a through line of a certain sort. Uh, and, and that's just a function, I guess, of, um, you know, uh, arrangement and sequence, uh, grouping. Uh, you know, the pieces have been, you know, sort of put under rubrics. Um, uh, you know, animals, futures, uh, freedoms, these sorts of groupings that I've used sort of halfway through, I sort of found that, oh, well, there's these kind of affinities and the sort of themes. And um, I think as I wrote through, uh, it, it became a sort of unified body of work rather than a set of discrete essays. So there, there definitely is like coloring and complexion um, that, that runs through them. So it isn't, it isn't an essay collection in the sense of, a set of discrete pieces that were sort of collected just for the convenience of the reader, as it were, to have them all in one place. It's a, it is probably there's an effect of accumulation um, in going through them of a kind of, um, you'll see issues coming up in different orientations or different questions being asked of the same, same um, maybe example. There's, there's the effect of accumulation and there are the groupings, um, but I'm also, um curious about whether there's um uh and then the, the, there are counter positionings and counter arguments made and you approach from different angles 
Um, I'm curious also about uh, whether you see the book as a whole as making um, its own argument almost separately from the discrete pieces or not separately, but as a, as a consequence of um, the variety of um, discrete pieces. Is, is there um, a whole that... Well, I, I think there's a there's a there's a sort of sensibility on display. I don't know if I would if it if it's anything as strong as an argument per se, but there is, you know, something is enacted or shown. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's it's really defended or argued for per se, but um, there's sort of a way of sort of exploratory thinking that I think the pieces share, and that over time, you know. Um, well, you know, one gets the sense of a certain narrative personality. I do think the pieces convey a, that's the continuity. I mean, really, topically, they're, they're, the book is you know, all over the place. You know, it doesn't really try to limit itself to any one thing or try to delve uh, extremely deeply into one issue. It, 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 it ranges sort of as freely as a mind does in, in any everyday um, context. You know, it's not, it's not meant as a study of one thing. Um, but I think over time, what what is not argued for but put on display is, is certainly a sensibility, and maybe that uh, that that would be missing from any excerpt or individual piece. I think you'd probably have to take twenty or thirty pages, and by that point, something begins to reverberate. Um, but that's the hope, anyway. And maybe you can talk a little bit about um, how the the sensibility on display relates to um uh the the sort of uh intuitions it um also attempts to uh maybe get clear about it uh, there's a, a a real effort um which i think also um comes from or uh maybe precedes maybe the temperament precedes the training um in analytic philosophy um, in the sense that you make real efforts to uh, clarify positions of uh, public opinion. Um, there's a lot of we and our uh, where it's not necessarily clear that you are even participating in we or our, but you make um, a, a real effort to uh, clarify to the extent possible what public opinion on a subject might be. Um, can you talk about what the relationship between uh, the narratorial presence and the sort of public opinion or intuitive presence? Uh, yeah, I, I think that again comes, comes from uh, analytic philosophy and, and its aims. Um, it's, it's an attempt to, to um, Understand common sense. Uh, I think that's that's historically. I mean, that's the name of Socrates as well. What take common opinion on a certain subject, knowledge or whatnot, and let then inquire after that. So there's definitely a Socratic element to the mm -hmm. book. That would be a kind of forerunner to the spirit of the work. I, I, that, that's definitely there, though. Obviously, run on a very compressed scale. Um, so there's an inquiry into what, what are our shared concepts and, and in what sense are they confused or, and that is again, a classically philosophic way to sort out conceptual confusion. So yeah, I think, I think I mean, look, I did a PhD in, in it and I, I spent a lot of time 
steeped in in philosophy for for many many years. So it, it makes sense that it would show up in various ways um, within the, the the work. But I don't think I necessarily undertook it with a sort of a spirit of you know, delineating concepts or, you know, so I, in, in that sense, I undertook it maybe more with the fiction writers, exploratory spirit, but it's bound to, you know, reflect years of, of that type of, of analysis and, and uh, uh, thinking. I think, no, I think that's absolutely true. I don't think it, it comes across at all, like uh, analytic philosophy, for one thing, it's like not boring, um, but, um, I also, um, I think that's um, an important feature of uh, what you've done. And um, I'm, um, uh, and I'm interested in um, the book. Uh, in the preface to it, um, talks about uh, possibly providing an opportunity to consider anew um, certain subjects and also perhaps participating in um, the construction of uh, new worlds, which is not really a role that uh, analytic philosophy uh, bestows upon itself. Um, and I guess I wonder. Um, what role you see uh, this book in particular and perhaps uh, your body of work more generally um, having well, it, in norm construction maybe something like that right i mean i mean here i think uh common sense is investigated but it's not analytic philosophy typically defends common sense yeah. it tries to vindicate it show that Basically, we're right about uh, the things we we, we we thought we knew. Uh, this book is not, and that this is much more uh, revisionary in that way. That I, I don't have a prior commitment to seeing our um, everyday uh, opinions um, legitimized. So in that way, it's that that's definitely a departure. Uh, it there's there's a interest in. Um, Sorting out confusions and re, re, you know reconceptualizing where where and as necessary through all of these sort of domains where our intuitions don't quite add up or we are un, unwilling to sort of deal with the consequences of a certain opinion. Um, there's an attempt to to say well let's 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 go back and let's see what what sort of coherent notion can be built or let's even before that let's notice that you know. We're saying two things that don't really square. That would be the initial stage, and I think many of the pieces try to confront um, um, that sort of issue. Uh, do you want to read uh, one more uh, concrete sure. thinking? <laughs> okay, uh, concrete thinking. The parable is sometimes derided as the most artificial of narrative forms, scrubbing away the motley accretion of detail to be found in documentary forms of imitation or mimesis. Yet spare morally instructive illustrative tales mimic real life storytelling far better than the more oblique accountings of events, which lack the clear practical import, the point, 
that outside of expressly aesthetic context makes lending one's ears a sensible proposition. Parables merely refine the anecdotes we offer each other every day in conversation. Someone asks our advice on a decision they need to make, moving to a new country, taking a new job, getting married. How often do we begin to offer our wisdom thus? Well, my friend moved to Shanghai, or a former colleague of mine left for a company like that, or my cousin actually married his high school sweetheart. As forms of reasoning go, anecdotes and their more refined cousins are elemental. It is no accident that most of the world's religious traditions are conveyed through them, and that philosophers since Plato have often grounded their ideas in them too. This is thinking via story rather than theory, and it's far and away the most pervasive form then and now. The morals of parables are often accused of patness, reducing the complexity of the world to truisms. Yet the more we examine them, whether the Garden of Eden, Billy Budd, or something altogether less artful, the more meaning we tend to find. Unlike a neatly stated theory or even an allegory, which cuts its story to fit ideas already in hand, a great parable is a vast quarry of sense. Through its particular relation of characters and events, the authentic parable gestures at where veins of significance run while leaving the audience to conduct the extraction for itself. Lesser parables, they aren't worth the name really, can fall into allegory, of course, just as fables like Aesop's do. Yet even these wooden tales pull their insights from the minds of anecdote and parable, the living embodiment of our wisdom. Thank you. This, I think, actually is my very favorite piece. Um, and it too comments on a number of things that run throughout. Um, uh, and quite subtly, it, it um, picks up uh, questions about um, enchantment and secularism and community and what sort of holds us all together. Um, and I wonder um, what emerged for you about those ideas in writing um, this book and um, whether you think we're lacking for common languages or whether you think uh, we're, we're finding something like that? Uh, in terms of the notion of enchantment, you mean? or, or? Um, I guess so. Uh, it, it does come up a number of times. Maybe we're not lacking for them. You do posit that sports might provide some, something like that. and um, uh, But there seems to be... A, some questions about what common languages or uh, what communal norms were right. available. Yeah, I, 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 I certainly explore explore those. I don't know if, if either in the book or in real life, I have a, a sort of final opinion on that. But um, I, I think you can't seriously think about 21st century life without wondering about its sort of spiritual core or uh lack of such a core um that's you know a recurrent question through so much of the literature right all this discussion of authenticity um uh what you know david shields referred to as reality hunger you know this has been going on for a while now so i think that is um i mean it's not it's not avoidable we live in a kind of hall of mirrors a, a virtualized world um so you're, you're going to have questions about you know, um, uh, about, you know, how well-grounded that world and how, how much does it, 
disconnect us, et cetera. So yeah, it was unavoidable. I don't think it was a, con a conscious effort to address any particular norm, but I don't think you could talk about modern life without, you know, about, you know the issues of fracture and um, disconnection. I think Olmsted, pretty much anyone might, would accept that. What are what uh, sorts of parables did, um, did you have in mind uh, for this moment, or or did you have? Well, any mind? I I mean, well, uh, an obvious reference would be much of much of Kafka's work really mm -hmm. breaks down into mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of um, you know tales that do have a you know they're 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 illustrated in various mm -hmm. ways. How, I mean, in the same way that the Decameron is, or that uh, the Canterbury Tales are, you know, full of four thousand and one nights. Um, they're all full of, you know, bits of wisdom that are not 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 always didactically structured per se. But I think, you know, we we draw wisdom from them in any case, and once we put them in a certain shape, we might say, well, this is, you know, this has a point. This, has, but they don't always occur to us in that way. They occur as instances of of life or instances of the imagination and um, after the fact we sometimes see uh, in them or a suggestion in them that we can apply elsewhere i think that's the connection between everyday life uh, anecdote and the most refined form which is sort of the purified form which is the parable but i don't i think they're ultimately connected to sort of quite contingent empirical truths and not something sort of a priori or um you know flowing from top down, they, they're really bottom up kinds of truth. And the bottom sometimes in, in, in some of these tales can be the imagination itself. So let's say Kafka would be an obvious reference point, Beckett. Um, and there are more ones perhaps, I, I don't know. Um, um, I, I don't read much literature from recent times, so it's harder to say. Do you think that's a form that's still available to the contemporary writers? Should uh, writer pursue it. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there are there are people working in short forms, and um, um, you know, you, you, I, I, I sort of think that we we work in real life already in in the form, and I think to what extent we even need the refinement of parables mm -hmm. is 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 a question that we're already steeped in. That it is our everyday mode of being is to instruct guide to uh to um even to guide ourselves via these sort of conceptions so I, the narrativity is already there you have i suppose you have authors who, who work in these forms i don't know how much um it depends on your sensibility whether it just as in, in their life how much you're aligned with their sensibility the, the guidance they can offer you so if you take someone say from a more like a 90s figure like David Foster Wallace, he can offer guidance so long as you are similar to him, as it were. And so I think someone like him does offer, you know, guidance. He, he obviously wrote many a short story and, and more than that, I think probably his essays are often more um, a moral guide to people. So it depends how much you're in resonance with, with those particular characters. And there are more recent ones, Ben Lerner say, mm -hmm. someone would find, see themselves in those tales and, and therefore find them useful guides because there's enough of a common core to talk, to talk about that. If, of course, you're more eccentric, you might not find that type of guidance. I rarely find any guidance in other writers in that way. Um, I sort of trust to myself and my own imagination, but it, I think it depends on how, you know, how you feel about 
the, how connected you feel to the community or how much you feel your situation is, is parallel. Um, I, I tend, I don't read that many stories. I don't read that much. I read enough to have a sense of what, what goes on, but I, I can't say I've been terribly steered or directed myself by, by a lot of those things. I would say the more wisdom I find is in the everyday chit chat with a, you know, a cashier or an airport worker, you know, that I'm more likely to find something of value there. Um, than in maybe some of the types of stories we have we have told, but that mm -hmm. that itself is a longer story. <laughs> okay, the the refinement um, in the in the refinement uh, something is lost uh, for you. Or I, I, the types of people who publish stories. Mm -hmm. I mean, are are uh, you know, and the types of tastes of editors. Those all mm -hmm. play into what you're going to see on a bookshelf. So I, I don't identify with the kind of you know, collapsed sort of um, hapless kind of protagonist that we find in, in so much uh, recent literature. I suppose if you did, again, with a, with a Jeff mm -hmm. Dyer type of narrator, you know, the sort of Woody Allen-ish kind of quality of many of, uh, of characters of say contemporary fiction, or um, even frankly, that, that, that's too limiting. Even ma many of our pieces of journalism is, isn't narrator often Kind of guy sort of shrugging his shoulders and observing uh, and speaks with not uh, so much authority as, as merely um, acting as a witness or kind of testifying to what he saw. Um, that kind of position that I personally don't connect with very strongly, but that's obviously it depends on who you are. So some people are going to find a lot in that because they feel hapless, they feel uh, rudderless. Um, uh, and, and then those stories can provide of guidance um it, it, everything is going to depend on that arrangement and alignment between you as an individual and and the kind of community that we have um, and that's going to you know it just varies a lot this book uh does a lot of considering of of community and of ethics um and those norms um and some amount of considering of uh the role of story in that um, do you mean then that um, the only a, a narrator with whom we relate can um, be a, a, a narrator who provides us guidance? Can we be guided by narrators who don't, um, with whom we don't share uh, personal? Yeah, I, I think I think we can. I mean, you can you can seek that out if if. I, I, I was taking your question to be more what, how is literature commonly read rather than how we could read it. I think it's commonly read in, in very foolish ways, but uh, that's just another story. Uh, I think you, you, you can pick up so much from, from almost any piece of literature, depending on how curious you are, how much you're willing to read against the grain, how, and how much you're willing to read against yourself, as it were, and how much you, you want literature to reinforce your values and please you, and how much you're happy to have literature uh, test you. And so I would say for me and the kind of book that I've written here and the kind of works that I maybe try to steep myself in, I prefer those kind of tests of selfhood. But I, you know, it's hard to say, and it depends what, what you care for. But I certainly think you can sharpen your mind against literature so long as you're willing to risk that, risk being unhappy with yourself when you finish a book or feeling that your own interpretive skills are inadequate or that the picture that painted of you is somehow inadequate and that could be a spur to change. So absolutely. 
Yeah, thank you, and, and thanks to Skylight. Thank you, Skylight. <laughs> thanks, Mark, and thanks, Rachel. Um, just because we kind of ended the conversation talking about reading strategies and practice, um, I'm curious, is there a book that has that you've read that stuck with you in this very strange year in which many of our habits and practices have been disrupted? Why don't you take a shot at that, Rachel? Oh, yeah. Um, Um, I, uh, have, um, oh God, I can't think of, <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> I, I can think of something I read recently that I, I was very impressed. With. It's not written recently, unfortunately, but, um, Herman Brock's The Sleepwalkers, which I, I was really bowled over by and found that, um, you know, that's essentially 1930s, uh, 1940s kind of literature. And, Many people have commented on the resonances between that time and some of the, you know, the tumultuousness of our of our sort of era. And and uh, the book, I mean, the title tells you something about it. It's about the sort of sleepwalking that people do, the the ways in which they they don't see. And uh, I, I was very shaken up by that work. So I, I certainly think, and it's a work that challenged me in certain ways. It's sort of philosophical and sort of showed in some ways that the the silliness of of philosophy in certain respects. So. Uh, that would be a work that I, that pushed me. Um, so, and I, I've uh, read uh, Vladimir Sharov's uh, "The Rehearsals" uh, here, and that's a, a Russian work uh, that does a lot with um, the idea of the end of the world um, and the failure of that the end of the world to manifest. Um, the fact that the end of the world doesn't actually come. Um, and I've found that uh, to be an interesting idea to play with um, this year, so. Yes, we've had a lot of world ending moments throughout this whole year and somehow time continues. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you both. Um, thank you for that really fascinating conversation. It was, it was such a pleasure to listen to you both. Um, so again, everyone, thank you for listening. The book today is Points of Attack by Mark De Silva, and he was in conversation with Rachel Allen. Mark and Rachel, thanks again. Um, I hope you have a, a lovely day wherever you are in the world, and um, hope we can have you in the store someday soon in person. Thank you so much. Thanks, Maddie. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.